Even in a pandemic, millions of fans tune in to watch Monday Night Football. On this Monday, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers host the Los Angeles Rams. Third and four. Goff was yet to miss tonight is on target again. It's a fairly typical NFL matchup, except for the mostly empty stands and the masks being worn on the sidelines. And yet, it's a historic night for the National Football League. It's the first time an officiating crew made up entirely of black men has called a game. As part of the coverage, the TV audience learns that the first black referee didn't work in the NFL until 1988. For sports historians Ornella Nsunduki Imana and Marty Clark, this isn't at all surprising, as you'll hear in this episode of We Are the Cougars, Diversity and Inclusion Education. Second down and four. Kaepernick keeps it. original name. That's a black man named Cassius Clay was my slave name. I'm no longer a slave. And here comes Robinson trying to steal home. He's safe, says the ump. I went on the courts with just a ball and a racket and a hope and, and that's all I had. Being in the First Nations kid, like there's not many in the NHL. So I was just thinking, you know, it's, it's a, it would be just a dream come true to get picked by anybody. Hi, and welcome to We Are the Cougars, Diversity and Inclusion Education, a podcast series produced at Mount Royal University. I'm Brad Clark. I teach on issues of race in the media and ethics in the School of Communication Studies. This podcast is coming to you from Mount Royal University, which is located in the traditional territories of the Nitsitapi Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Siksika, the Bagani, the Gainai, the Sutuna, and the Iahe Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation. Cougars Athletics and Recreation condemns racism and oppression. Mount Royal University strives to provide an education and experience that is equitable and inclusive. In this episode, we'll discuss those words we've heard a lot lately, diversity and inclusion. Our guides through this episode are Ornella Nsunduki Imana and Marty Clark. Ornella is an assistant professor of human kinetics at St. Francis Xavier University in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. I was born in Rwanda, which explains my very long last name. And I, I came over here, well, I left Rwanda around 10. I came over here around 12 years old. So I think it was like around 22 where I realized that I've now spent more time here than I did where I was born. She lived in Ottawa and had hoped to become a doctor. And then ended up becoming the wrong or the right type of doctor. <laughs> And that's just because I kind of fell into sport history very late into my undergrad. Sports history won her over and she went to Western University to write and research her PhD dissertation. Which was on Black Canadian women's sport history. And I think I went in thinking I'm going to do the whole of the country and almost all of the time. But that's not, that's more of a career goal than anything. She ended up focusing on Southern Ontario between the 1920s and 40s because it was an interesting time for women's rights. And she wanted to see what that meant for racialized women. Now I, I just continue to research Black history in Canada, which has not been done a lot, but also surprisingly not to draw causation, but definitely correlation with the fact that there has not also been many 
Black Canadian historians of sport. That's what essentially gets me to this moment where I work and try to, to expand that understanding of, of Canadian Blackness using sports to do that, using sport history to do that, sports sociology. And I teach that, I research that, I talk about it to anybody who will hear me, essentially. Marty Clark is an assistant professor in the Department of Health and Physical Education at Mount Royal University. I am a white guy from Manitoba, Treaty 1 territory, did my undergraduate work at the University of Manitoba, and just like Ornella, got interested in sport history right at the sort of tail end of that undergraduate degree. His PhD is also in sports history. He's in his sixth year at MRU. And I teach in this area of sport history, sports sociology. And yeah, I come to this discussion as someone who's very interested in sports in this country, but probably more interested in race, gender, and things like racism, anti-racism, studying those critically through sport, right? So using sport as the sort of place uh, and space that I am interested in looking at and understanding how you know, historically and up till 2020, how groups of people have been marginalized and faced inequality within sport and how, you know, what we can do to sort of, I don't know, um, reverse those trends as we, you know, as we move into the future. As it turns out, Canadian sports history offers an excellent lens to take a closer look at those two words we've heard so much lately, diversity and inclusion. Ornella explains. Diversity and inclusion are very different because one is what it looks like. It's about looking diverse, showing a picture that is not a whole group of the same people. And inclusion is actually including people, not just inviting them to sit at the table, but listening to them, taking into account what they're saying and applying it, and actually having them included within the, the, the structure of whatever institution that may be, whether we're talking journalism, since we're here, but, you know, uh, a, a university, a sports team, and so on and so forth. The thing that comes to mind when I think about that question is this study that I did of the first Black Canadian Olympian, John Army Howard. He, he was recruited to the team in 1912 when the games were being held in Stockholm. And they removed the color bar expressly to recruit someone like him because they needed every single person that could get on board uh, for the team. And it, it ended up being that that team, at least as far as I can tell for the uh, track and field team, was very diverse. They had a him, the black man, and they had two indigenous athletes as well on the team. That was diverse, absolutely, but was it inclusive? Well, diving into it, no, not at all. He was punched by his coach, who told this very proudly in his memoir, the coach. He he was uh, ostracized. He, he, could, he could not sit with the team on the way to Stockholm on the ship. I think he was fired from the team about three times between being on the team and competing in Stockholm. And he came back to a country that at the end of the day did not really want him, even though they had chosen him to represent them in, in Stockholm. Being on the team did not remove his blackness, did not remove his 
otherness and and that's where that inclusion part was not a pa- you know was not a package deal with the diversity part so that that's uh that's how i very much differentiate those two i totally agree with arnella and i think diversity can oftentimes be about optics it can be about showing that you have people of color in your organization or in your institution and we've seen that in sport we've seen the nhl hop on the sort of willie o'ree train and and say look we included willie o'ree and that's when racism ended you know willie o'ree when he plays in the 1950s right it's like he is included one person but the league is almost entirely white the coaches, the managers, everybody that has any sort of authority position is white. And I, and I realized that in my introduction, I didn't talk about my own research, which is on Gordie Howe and representations of Gordie Howe uh, and how he becomes Mr. Hockey in post-war Canadian and American, but mostly Canadian media. And one thing that dawned on me in my research is that I, I read everything that was ever written about Gordie Howe within reason. And every single one of those things was written by a white guy about a white guy. And the whole entire hockey magazines and sports sections that I was flipping through from the 50s, 60s, 70s was entirely white men, right? And so there have been moments of these little little micro inclusions of athletes of color, uh, indigenous men, black men, but the, the league and really the sporting institutions outside of hockey, but hockey especially, remains incredibly white, right? So inclusion for me is actually including people of color within sporting institutions in a very real way, listening to their voices and and hearing what they have to say. And we're seeing these little moments now where where athletes of color in in hockey are starting to be heard, but it's very, very new, right? So diversity is one thing, uh, but inclusion is the very real, for me, the very real thing that needs to happen. I talked to Ornella and Marty the morning after that significant Monday night game with the first all-Black officiating crew. As part of the coverage of the milestone, The broadcast team talked about Johnny Greer, the first black referee to call a game in the NFL in 1988. 32 years later, Jerome Boger was a member of that historic officiating crew. I am humbled to stand on the shoulders of the black officials who paved the way for me, especially Johnny Greer, who's number 23 I wear today. As a sports historian, it does not surprise me at all that the first black ref ref the game in the NFL in 1988, because you see how incredibly white uh, the sports world was for so, so long. And I think to me, what it also says is, especially when it comes to any sort of authority figure, that those positions remained white and male for so long because people attach leadership and, and sort of rationality uh, in our culture and society for so long to white men. And so it it mimics the sort of, you know, lawyers and judges and doctors and how all politicians, how those CEOs, how those positions were white for so long. And you see that in, in sport. So not surprising at all. And, and I love that the first all black crew, you know, reft, reft a game in the NFL. I think that that's awesome. But it shows us how, you know, 
how new this all is as well. That the, the first was in 88, well into my lifetime. And now we get the, the, the first black crew and we're getting women reps for the first time ever, you know, in the last few years. So they're, it's becoming diverse and there is inclusion, but it's very recent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, I mean, it's funny because we keep saying diversity and you brought in football and it reminded me of a recent campaign that the CFL run. I think it was in 2017 because it was coinciding with 150 years celebration and also coincided with Trudeau uh, coming out with his whole sunny ways, was it sunny ways or sunny days and, and diversity is our strength kind of motto. And if they, they release the diversity is our strength, a little clip campaign thing where they, they, they essentially went back and flashed all these non-white athletes that they've had in their history in order to say, you know, this is what, this is a feel, uh, what is it? It says something along the lines of this is a, a what is it, a, a league of Kwongs and, you know, and all these names that they go with and the pictures, of course, are rolling. And yeah, absolutely looks great, but I'd be interested to see if those Kwongs were also promoted to managers and, and, you know, refs and, well, owners and all of those other <laughs> steps above just a player. And that's where diversity is as well, right? The, you, diverse on a field, but are you giving people a chance to actually move up and have any kind of uh, influence or are you just having them as employees and laborers, which, you know, that's not diversity. That's just you taking advantage of what they can give you, which is the typical thing that you've had historically. Employing people is not diversity, it's just employing people. It seems there have been some advances in the world of athletics. There are more indigenous and racialized players in most sports. There are a few more women and people of color in officiating and management and administration, but we're still reckoning with a deeply racist past. One thing that I try and get across to my students is that the very start of what we call modern sport, the sport that we would recognize today on the television with sort of rules and you know, hockey can be played in, in San Jose and Montreal under the same rules, right? That kind of the, the game that we sort of recognize started in the 1800s as an incredibly exclusive thing, right? And so does lacrosse and so do a whole range of sports. So they actually start with rules, in explicit rules, barring Indigenous peoples, barring women, barring laborers. And so people who, you know, who had to, you know, work or get paid for sports, the amateur rules for, forbade them from being included. And from there, sport remains in Canada and the United States and the UK, Australia, some of these places, incredibly, incredibly white and male for a very, very long time. We see evidence of that when we say the first black football ref came in, in 1988. We see evidence of that if we just flip through all the coaches and all the major sports and all the referees and all the managers and owners for a long, long time, it's just pictures. It would just be pictures of white men that we'd be flipping through. We are starting to see some changes, absolutely for sure. But I think sport 
at the like the institutions of sport and who's making decisions at at these levels and and what we value in sport is still incredibly incredibly white and male and heterosexual and all these other things right but it's we're we're making steps but we're walking from a place where there was almost no inclusion at all right so ornella i don't know what you have to say but uh incredibly white for a long long time Absolutely. And that history still goes, you know, has a repercussions to today. I was just telling my students uh, yesterday, the group presented on women's sport, discrimination against women in sport, uh, historically speaking. And one of the questions, well, one, one issue they raised was the ways even today athletes who get pregnant risk losing their sponsors you know nike will drop you like a hot potato as soon as you get pregnant until you come back but you know in the meantime you need to live and and they 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 have very few i mean very terrible uh, policies around that and you know that goes back to a very recent past in which when you got married you were off you you were relieved of your duties as an athletic person and so we still see this and of course nike is probably not thinking about that time when when you were a missus you could not be on a field anymore but that is what they're replicating they have not adapted to the times and so yeah all of these this history has a very much a legacy into today and and, and we see the results of it again uh, very recently the mlb with their first manager of color, who's also a woman, in 2020. And so you think there's a certain section of the population that lives under the notion that we're post-racial, that these things are gone. But we these things will not be gone until her, this manager, can be hired and be fired like anybody else without her being the representative of all women and all people of Asian descent and all people of color, where when she can be as mediocre as anybody else and just be her, be her the individual who was mediocre, not the whole group. And that's what we're still fighting with, is that despite the fact that the Ben Johnson incident was in was a bit more than 30 years now, he, he faced the fact that once that happened, it became something black athletes were expected to, and every black athlete after him was under his shadow. Donovan Bailey demystified that a little bit, diminished that a little bit, but he operated under that shadow. And until we can have athletes be able to just be representatives of a name and not a whole group of people, we're still very much stuck in that past. That racist past might seem inconsistent with the image of the nice, friendly, polite Canadian. But our sports evolution was shaped by colonialism and the settler state. The athletic tradition has been exclusive, masculine, able-bodied, and heteronormative. There is a legacy, a particular legacy in Canada that is not necessarily the same as, you know, what makes Canada Canada. It's a colony. It's a, it has displaced Indigenous peoples in, in order to, to establish itself. And in doing that, it has created a, its own specific approach to sport. When I'm, t- I'm teaching the history of sport class, I start with pre-contact era, with 
practices that indigenous peoples in these lands uh, practiced before Europeans arrived and read it wrong, read it the way they wanted to read it and banned it or took it over for themselves. And then, of course, so there's that history there. And then you bring it into colonization and confederation and so on. And that continued to color the history in this country, the development of sport in this country. So it's been tainted by that history of colonization. The the people who have been included and excluded were done, were, were included or excluded based on what Canada has been and continues to be, which is a, a settler state. Canadian national identity likes to differentiate itself from other places and say that we're nice and that we say sorry and and we'll hold up sports like hockey and hockey players and people like hockey players and say, here's evidence of how we are different and how we do things different here. We play a sport like hockey and it's really violent, but we're really nice and we play it according to rules and the players who play are violent gentlemen. They are these gentlemen who are Canadian and that they smile when they do this and they sort of live or play according to a set of unwritten rules. And, you know, we've we've done that in Canada. We've held up people like Gordy Howe and said, this is how you become a man or should act like a man. You know, knowing your your role and going and being tough, but also being a nice guy. And I think that in Canada, I mean, we have done that for white men. We hold up white guys who play hockey and say, these are the examples, even though they're violent and, and that violence might spill out of the rink and you might learn how to punch people in the face and elbow people in the face. But we say particular things about white guys who play hockey that they are gentlemen. Right. And two, I mean, to go back to what Arnella said about settler colonial state, hockey is used in residential schools to teach uh, Indigenous children how to be more like a Canadian and less like an Indigenous person with their own unique language and culture. So sport has, you know, in Canada, like other nations, I mean, has been used to simulate Indigenous people to do particular things like that. So we like to say in Canada that we're nicer and that we say sorry and that we're, we sort of act and behave in particular ways, but it's, you know, I don't know, it, it sort of goes along with everything in a colonial state that sort of sets white people up for privilege and people of color and indigenous people to sort of be excluded. So the use of uh, sport as an assimilation tool has been used absolutely against indigenous groups, against indigenous children. And and you have to mention that it was only boys who were given the opportunity to have access to that sport as well in residential school. And also a small group of them, some who had access benefited from it and took it over and, and redefined it for themselves. Who were either, when they were lucky enough to have access, not all of them did, and those who did were mostly boys. But also that assimilation was used just in general around the country. Like you say, you know, the same way the flag was used, hockey is wrapped up in Canadian history in that way as well. We are a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs. Today, the message from sports leagues to fans and athletes is that sport includes everybody. And while it's an upbeat and positive message, it isn't what Indigenous and racialized athletes experience. 
Ornelas says that contradiction is hard on the people who encounter racism all the time. Essentially navigating being an environment that for all intents and purposes is not that inclusive, but at the same time dealing with phrases like diversity is our strength and we're multicultural, we take everybody, we're diverse, look, you're, you're on this team, so that's it, that's enough. And so it is the biggest, all of that essentially comes down to it is difficult to be heard. It is difficult to be heard over the, the noise of diversity and multiculturalism and, and get over it and we're over it and we're post-racial and, you know, it's, it's just very difficult to make people understand who do not have the experience of walking into a room and having to act in a very specific way in order to not be mistaken for the stereotype that you are regardless because you walk into the, a room as an indigenous athlete as a racialized athlete as a black athlete as your past um you this is this is what precedes you before you as an individual even get in and and, that, and that's difficult to understand for most uh the rest of the people that they may have on their team, uh, which are likely to not have that experience and that othered experience. And, and therefore, this makes it, it makes it difficult for them to speak up and to make themselves heard about the barriers that they may be facing. And of course, when they're walking into these spaces, most, most likely they, are, they may not have someone who has their back at a higher level. So it's one thing to face adversity on your team and being able to say, well, you know, I can speak to the coach or the assistant coach, and they may be able to understand and put the, themselves in, in my shoes. But when you have a system that is not only, that may be quite diverse on the field, but if the refs are not responsive, if your coaches, if the administrators, if the higher levels still are not receptive, it's going to be very, difficult to navigate for a racialized young athlete who all they want you know who are just there to just have fun and do and do the sport they love you know i'm speaking as a white prof at, at mount royal and and one of the things that i think i can do is listen to athletes of color and listen to people of color in our culture tell us about the experiences of racism as an example. And I think that one of the challenges that athletes of color or, or just people of color in our, in our community face is that people still don't listen to them and really hear their voice. And historically, you know, we can see how, you know, someone like Tom Longbow to the early 1900s, his voice is almost missing from the historical record because no one was listening to him and his experience uh, at that time. And, and this still is, is happening in 2020. And so one of the challenges that I think that I think people of color face is, is still not being listened to in sort of a more mainstream popular culture kind of way. And that there are sort of attempts to shut that voice down. If you think about Black Lives Matter as a political movement, which has got a lot of traction lately, we have responses like the All Lives Matter that is really, in my mind, an attempt to just stop the conversation about race, right? And so one of the things that we can do and is listen, listen to the Black Lives Matter movement, listen to athletes of color and what they're saying. Listen to athletes like Jamal Watson, 
a fifth-year accounting student, and forward on the Cougars men's hockey team. Like other athletes of colour and Indigenous athletes, Jamal is speaking out, asking people to listen and to take real action in fighting racism. I just want to say that uh, you see the news today about the Black Lives Matter when the protests are huge in numbers and every single person there is black, white, Asian, Indigenous. You see a multitude of groups saying systemic oppression and racism is no longer acceptable within our society and I think that's a great step in the right direction, but I think MRU, we for sure can take that next step forward and start pushing the envelope to say it's not enough to be um, just followers. We want to be leaders in, in the forefront of being anti-racist and creating a culture where no matter where you're from, you feel like your family at MRU. Marty Clark is contributing to that culture in the classroom, connecting sports history with stereotypes and racism. And I think another thing too that, that I find in, in my teaching at Mount Royal is that there are still stereotypes about black athletes, as an example, that they're somehow magically naturally athletic based on their biology or their genetics. And students come to my classroom with that knowledge, right? And one of the things that I try and do is dismantle that, think critically about that, talk about the human genome and talk about the human genome project and how race is a social construction, not based in any sort of biological scientific fact now that we are all the same. We oftentimes look at black athletes or we look at, you know, the, the finals of the hundred meter sprint at the Olympics and say, ah, there's 10 black men lined up. So therefore black people are naturally gifted at athletics. And, and I say, well, why don't we do that for swimming? Why don't we do that for cross country skiing and say, oh, white people must be naturally gifted at this. We only do that for black athletes. And I think that is an ongoing challenge, right? For black athletes, they, they're, they're bumping up against these stereotypes. They're being, you know, they're being ushered into particular kinds of roles in sport based on what people consider to be their sort of natural gifts. And that's all hogwash for me. And so I think that that is a big ongoing challenge. Ornella Nzinduki Imana suggests a commitment to listening, not just hearing, moves us from simple diversity to inclusion. There's a lot of hearing happening, I think, to this year. But, you know, there's always how much is this an actual, you, you're, you're listening, you know, you're hearing and listening and in integrating that and making a change based on that and a permanent change. And how much is it just optics of, oh yeah, uh, you know, everybody's doing the, the, the Black Lives Matter thing. So let's, let's kind of jump on that boat without really thinking about it. And it, it just brings me back to earlier this year when everything was happening and Prime Minister Trudeau goes to the, the, a, a protest that was happening in Ottawa and he also kneels alongside, I think, the, the, the chief of the Ottawa police. And that is absolutely not listening because you're kneeling against who? You, you're the one people are protesting. You, you should not be kneeling. You should be somewhere in an office doing the work, responding to the protest. And so th th there is a danger too, is that, you know, one challenge is that people will then jump on a, a bandwagon and actually forget about listening to people. Just you know, make it about stickers and 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 being in and and hashtagging uh, their way through it without actually 
bringing concrete change at the end of it. So really, this moment will be judged by where we'll be in five, 10 years from now, because so far it's been a lot of, okay, I'm, li- I'm hearing. We'll see if there if was any listening going on. How many people have shared Black Lives Matter, so- something Black Lives Matter on social media, but you know, couldn't have an Indigenous teammate in the hockey dressing room because of the jokes they make or those kinds of things. So like what real change is happening and how are people adapting versus, you know, what they they say they're doing or what they're sharing on social media. And I still think there's a big gap in between those two things. I think the biggest thing is to not take any of this personally. And I think that's where people get caught up. Uh, when you see, you know, the, the reactions, like, when you see entities to be anti-racist, people are caught in their feelings about how they're not and how rude it is and how, you know, they do, they, they're they not racist. They love all people and all the purple people as well are always included in that. And it's like, no, it's not about being colorblind. If you're colorblind, Fine. If you think you don't see color and you don't think you're, you know, maybe some a doctor should be involved somewhere in there. You should have your eyes looked at because nobody's asking you not to see color. It's about seeing color and not have it affect anything. You know, it's about understanding that people look different, but they're not different. That you know, that it shouldn't affect how you feel about them, how, you know, their competences uh, until you speak to that specific person. So it's never about not seeing color. I think that we have some issues around that as society and that it's not about you personally. I recognize that as a cisgendered, able-bodied woman, I, a heterosexual woman, I have some hung-ups, I have some blind sides. When it was a, it was Transgender Awareness Week last week, and I went to a memorial, and someone mentioned that you know there are certain things that we do that that erase trans, transgender identities, assume genders. And I'm guilty of that. I didn't take it as an attack on myself and, oh, but I also have problems. It has nothing to do with that. It just means that in all the problems that I have in my life, I am not affected by that specific aspect of life. And that's all that there is to it, really. Marty adds that you have to understand your privilege and get comfortable being uncomfortable. Recognize that other groups in society face more barriers. According to Andres Tapia, an author and thought leader from Peru, diversity is the mix. Inclusion is making the mix work. And when we have inclusion and the mix works, an NFL officiating crew of all black men will become as routine as an all-white crew. the Cougars Diversity and Inclusion Education podcast is produced by Cougar Athletics and Recreation. Alex Brody, Stu Blay, and me. 
We'd like to thank Ornella Nzinduki Yimana, Marty Clark, Steve Kootenay Jobin, and Janelee Morris for their insights, wisdom, and knowledge. We'd also like to thank members of the Cougars BIPOC Committee who initiated and guided this project. More information about the We Are the Cougars Diversity and Inclusion Education podcast is available online at mrucougars.com. I'm Brad Clark. Thanks for listening.